Hey everybody, welcome to the Trad Geeks podcast, episode number 95, presented by Sick of Gear. We have a special guest with us again today, Aaron Snyder. What's up, buddy? How's it, how's it going? It's going good, man. It's going really good. It's been a, a busy year, um, in a very weird year with COVID, but it's going good. Yeah, you've been been hunting a lot, and you, you had a pretty good year, I think. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I did okay. I didn't. Um, I didn't. I kind. I went after trying to kill a really big elk. I actually spent almost twenty six days straight in the wilderness. I came home once or twice, and uh, I could not get it done. But everything else, pretty much, that I went after, I, I got. Um, and it was a weird year, just like with COVID and in the world. It was also a weird year, a weird rut uh, for, for elk. Um, but uh, but it was fun. That's awesome. That's, you know, kind of why we wanted to have you on the podcast. So that's a good segue right into the conversation um, to talk about elk hunting. I know just following you on social media this year, that was probably uh, the best portion of your season that I enjoyed following because Aaron Emhoff, who's my co-host here, uh, we are passionate about coming out west and elk hunting. So that's why we wanted to have you on there in 26 days just even if you come into town for a day or two, that's incredible. Like it's hard for us to wrap our head around it. Don't you think Aaron? Yeah. And the other good thing or not good thing, but the, uh, made me feel a little better to see that Aaron Snyder didn't kill an elk in Colorado. So it didn't make me feel (laughs) (laughs) quite as bad, but then I heard you were holding out for a giant. So it was a reality check for me because I would have shot anything. Yeah, we had, uh, we, I think we tried to figure it out. I, I think I, uh, I mean, it doesn't really matter because I didn't get what I was after, but I think I ended up passing up 13 bulls, and one was really, really good. Uh, Mike Hearn called in. It was uh, it was a 5 by 3 but it was one of those 5 by 3s that, you know, had 14-inch base. I mean, it literally had baseball bats for bases, and uh, I, I, I literally for five minutes had it at 12, 14 yards, standing there trying to figure out if Mike wasn't actually a cow or not. And I literally drew back three times on it. And I'm like, no, it's not as big as the, you know, score wise, not as big as the, the, the first uh, elk I shot with the recurve. And as it went up the hill, I was like, yeah, I'm probably going to regret that. Um, and I did. So. <laughs> That's awesome. We, uh, we've been out the last two years to Colorado and, and I think we've had good hunts. We really have. And we'll give you a kind of a, I'll let Aaron explain to you how, how we hunted. But uh, we got into bulls every single day. And, and last year, Aaron and I both hit bulls. And unfortunately, it didn't work out for us. Mine was a, a big one. And I just flat out shit my pants pretty much. <laughs> it was a giant. And uh, Aaron Aaron hit one as well, but a little back. And we, we ended up not finding it. But go ahead, Aaron. You know, give... Aaron Snyder, a little bit of background to how we hunt and some questions we want to ask him. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, our style, and we're coming from out east and uh, really outside of listening to podcasts and reading a little bit online where we know nothing about elk hunting. Um, so we just parked the trailhead, packed up in a couple miles and sort of hunted out of that area. And the first year we were there, well, the first year Kevin was there, it was the second year I was there. We were in Delk every day, had great encounters. We had, I think, in a week we had called nine different bull elk into traditional range and just 
for one reason or another, which you're aware of this, we just couldn't seem to seal the deal on an elk with a trad bill. Last year was a, or 2020 was a little bit different story. Um, just really couldn't find the elk like we did the year before. Um, they, like you said earlier, the ruts seemed to be off. It was just, a, it was an odd year. It was unproductive for us. There was people everywhere. So it, it's kind of, we, we thought we were really on top of the game after 2019. We were in Delk and then we went back out in 2020 and it was a reality check for us that we don't know what the hell we're doing, which is why we have you on the podcast, Snyder, is to learn a little bit. So I, I got a, a question or I guess I'll just start the, the conversation that I want to have with you. If you were coming from Pennsylvania, um, heading to Colorado to elk hunt, you had a week, two weeks, maybe 10 days, whatever the time was, you had, in our case, we had to draw this tag this year. So we were confined to that unit, but we felt it was pretty good. I'm just kind of curious how you would go about hunting for a week or 10 days with the goal in mind to just kill any elk, any legal bull that comes in a uh, four by four comes in, you'd shoot it. I'm kind of curious how you would go about hunting that week, what your techniques would be, what your calling would be when you'd pull up ship and move to a different area. And I know I'm kind of throwing a lot at you there, but I'm just kind of wanting you to give us the rundown on how you think Easterners should approach that. Gotcha. And, and actually those are all, you know, good, good questions. So one of the first things that I, you know, I would ask you guys or ask anyone that presents this question with me is, uh, you know, what, what type of year, what time of year or what type of hunt do you want? Um, you know, you, you don't get the primos hunt very often, right. Where they're really screaming and coming at you. You do sometimes, uh, sometimes you get like, um, with you in 2019, um, you guys hit, it sounds like maybe a honey hole and you hit it at the right time and, you know, had some good call-ins, but, for the most part, that's more the exception than the rule. You can get into that, but mm-hmm. it's not something you always want to count on. So if you want to, um, me, I, I like hunting early when I'm hunting over the counter. If I get a draw tag and there's a little less pressure, a uh, little bit more chance of calling, I'll hunt a little bit later in the year. But if I'm hunting OTC, I head straight to tree line. Um, it's, you know, the moment the season opens, I get in a day early, uh, I glass just like a sheep, mountain goat, or mule deer hunt. I glass, find out where their summer feeding patterns are. I generally know that already because I live here, but you get the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, calling kind of works. Um, you're not going to have the, um, you know, rage, the the crazy bull screaming and breaking trees very often, but you're going to have cow and calf talk. You're going to have some bulls bugling. Uh, raghorns are certainly, you know, four by four, five by five, certainly going to come into to calling, not super aggressive, but they're, they definitely start to fill in the tingle in their balls where they're, you know, get a little more aggressive. That, that would be my, you know, you usually have a three to five day window, depending upon how much you blow them out or other hunters do certainly three days of fun and games at, you know, 12,000 feet. Um, you're, you're glassing them, you're sneaking in, calling a little, uh, some spot and stock, um, ambushes, you know, if they're feeding, you know, they're coming off of, uh, you know, these big, you know, basins, right, where they're going to come back in the timber to bed up so you can ambush. You know, that's a good way to kill a elk, whether it be a cow or bull. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you might kill a giant that way. Um, they're certainly, you know, there. They're just not as susceptible to, um, 
you know, they're not stupid, right? One of the problems with calling it 12,000 feet is you can see forever, right? You've got sparsy pines or whatever the hell those are called, bristle comb. You got some, you know, things to hide behind, but, you know, a, a, a six-year-old bull doesn't get to six years old by being stupid. Uh, he's not just going to come screaming in normally. There's exceptions. To, you know, some jack wagon like myself or you guys blowing a cow call, um, you know, on September 1st. It just doesn't happen like that very often. Sneaking in and killing is very doable. So I would say if you just want to kill an elk, early season isn't a horrible idea on summer feeding patterns. Again, there's a short window for that, three to five days. And they're generally going to be blown out unless you hike so far into such a nasty spot that you've passed everyone. But then two guys from back east probably aren't going to pack one elk out for six miles, certainly not two, without having some serious physical repercussions and probably some mental damage as well. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you... I don't, I don't know. I, I just had a guy on my podcast where we talked about this. You guys know who Matt Chan is. He's a CrossFit freak and won the Titan games. And, um, you guys a physical specimen. He packed an elk out three miles. He said it was the worst thing he's done physically in his life. Coming from a dude that I think he took second in the CrossFit games in 2012 and has spent his entire life abusing his body. That should give people a pretty good idea if he said packing an elk out three miles was the worst thing he's ever did. That you might not want to pack an elk out three miles solo. Right. Right. Yeah. You got to you got to figure out your physical. Yeah, for us, um, for us, Aaron, so, you know, you know, just kind of give you some background, and this might help as well moving the conversation forward. Aaron and I have been out west. Aaron more than myself killed some animals out west and packed some animals out. I killed a cow in Utah and. The pack out was out was with Matt Davis and my buddy Mark. So there was three of us. She was a big cow, but not a bull, you know. And and we did it. It was like a two or three mile pack out, so it was nothing too too severe and pretty good terrain. But I could definitely see how people and Aaron and I ran into it this year. Some boys from Texas killed one back in there, and they were far from their trailhead. Um, it was an easy pack out for for us if we would have killed it there, but for them it was horrible. And they got themselves in a pickle, you know, um, they had to end up having somebody come in and get it, but I could see how that's definitely something people need to think about first and not after the fact. Yeah. And it, you know, it really depends on the, the terrain, right? If you're hunting yep. the Sunger to Cristo mountain range, I, I would be hard pressed that you would tell the same story of it wasn't really that bad. Yeah. Uh, packing one out three miles to where if you're hunting, I don't know, pick another, you know, wilderness, whatever, the the Sarvis where it's more timber and uh, whatever, a little bit easier terrain, you know, that's that's totally different. So it certainly, you know, depends on where you're hunting. But, um, you know, you get the idea, though, that, you know, definitely take that in consideration. Now, if you're wanting to get into, you know, more of the calling uh, you know, that generally starts to kick in a little bit later on in the year. The problem with Colorado, um, with many other states, with specifically Colorado, since we hand out over-the-counter tags to out-of-staters like it's our job, you may not get that calling um, that calling sequence atmosphere, that, that whole, you know, the circle of life where the bulls are scared. Yeah, because they're scared shitless because everyone from Texas to Kansas has run them to death. Mm -hmm. And now... 
you're really going to have to find pockets like where they feel a little safer, maybe um, kind of a hidden basin where they'll come out and rut up. Um, maybe just that right place, right time where a cow goes into estrus and the bulls are firing up one morning. It's certainly not going to be as exciting as you may think all the time. Now you will get into that. It's just, again, more the exception than the rule. And I hate to set people up for false hope. It can happen. I just wouldn't expect it to happen more than once in a seven day hunt where when I say once, one morning, you're probably going to walk into a bull in a bugling frenzy, uh, maybe two, you know, or an evening or whatever. But it's certainly you're going to have more days where you're probably not going to have that than you are. I mean, it's it's hunting. That's not to say you won't find a honey hole and have that happen. So if you have the hopes of doing more calling, you probably want to go later on in the year, um, you know, for that. And de- depending on the unit you're at, the pressure um you have a hell of a lot better bullet time killing a big bull between the, you know, eighth to the twelfth, let's say, roughly, um, before all the big bulls are like totally cowed up. Because once you get into that twenty third, fourth, fifth time frame, it's going to be real hard to pull a big bull off of off of its cows. But if you're just looking to shoot anything, then that that mid September, if you're wanting to call, is a good time. And and cold calling. Some people don't like to do that, and, and it doesn't always work, but if you find unpressured areas or not super-pressured areas, um, you know, cold calling probably not going to produce big bulls, but cold calling certainly will produce a bull. And when I say cold calling, if, if it's us three, right, which three is a crowd, by the way, elk hunting, don't ever take three people, in my opinion, other than the pack out, it's great. Uh, <laughs> two is, is much better. I think um, we've had three every year. Three people. <laughs> yeah. Three's a, three's a lot of people, if you're hunting together. Yeah. If, if if one guy's solo and two are partnering up, and, and it's a big enough area, it's not that bad. But the last thing you really want to do is, is hike in, four miles to a basin that, you know, holds elk with three guys because two guys are getting screwed. You're probably not going to kill three elk. Two guys are packers. One guy's going to shoot. Now, if it's a huge wilderness with not a lot of basins and a lot more, you know, area to hunt, it's, it's different. And there's a, there's a lot of scenarios to this, but I try not to ever hunt with three guys for elk. It's just a pain. Um, and, And as I say that, if it works for you, I mean, by all means, but you know, for, for me, I just like two guys. Um, but when you're, when you're doing these cold calling sequences, uh, they're very, very productive for young dumb elk, which if you're just looking to shoot an elk many years, I do that. You really, you want to, you know, you kind of want to, I would say cock block them. You want to make sure they can't sneak in behind you. So use the terrain to your advantage. Um, you want to make sure you have good back cover, whether that means tree and a rock cliff, so they can't sneak in behind you. The big thing you don't want them to do is circle all the way behind you to win you. You want if you're setting up with two or three people cold calling, you want to make it to where the hope is, is whether you can see them or not, when the elk come out, they're coming in that doorway. Chris Rowe talks about this. They're, mm-hmm. they're coming in the doorway or the threshold. They're crossing that. That when they cross that threshold to see who's calling, you're close enough to, to shoot them. Because it's very difficult with cold calling. They almost always come in silent. Every now and then they'll bugle, but they're almost generally going to come in silent and and when they do it could take 30 to 45 minutes or an hour straight of calling to get them to 
to come in. We've called bulls in above tree line that literally have taken three hours to get to us where we've watched them the whole way. Wow. And, you know, if you're just sitting in timber, how the hell do you know if something's coming? We could at least see it, yeah. right? We knew it was coming, but who's going to sit there for three hours? But 45 minutes is, is doable. Um, so you want to make sure the, the, the shooter, even though the, the guy upwind may get the shot, the shooter's downwind, um, meaning the guy that's gotten screwed the most and it's his turn to shoot. He's downwind. Because generally, the guy downwind isn't going to call as much as the guy upwind. The guy upwind is going to do the majority of the calling. The guy downwind is just going to make enough noise to make sure the bull, when he loops around, is is is, is potentially looking for that um, that cow that's occasionally calling. You know, hypothetically, um, when when that happens. And, and I, have you guys cold called very much? Well, I would actually like you to break that down, Aaron, a little bit, like what exactly you're calling cold calling. Cause I know that this has gone over in podcasts, but um, I'm not a good caller by any means. So I'd like you to break that down a little bit, but yeah, Aaron, we do, <laughs> we do a lot. Uh, we listen to Chris Rowe quite a bit and follow what he's doing. So we're on board with that. We're just kind of curious what you do. Um, and I just had him on the marathon of podcasts that he's on for mine for four hours. Um, <laughs> and then, we did another one the next day for three and a half. Um, oh yes. so for, <laughs> cold calling just flat out. The easiest way to do it is you are just calling in an area that you know holds elk, but the elk aren't talking. So you are just setting up in, and calling. And when you say cold, meaning there's nothing calling back in hopes that a bull or a cow or both will come into your calling. It, it's, there's a lot of other things you can wrap into that, but you're yep. generally just setting up in an area you know is kind of a hot spot that holds elk in hopes that a bull comes in. And this could be because the elk are pressured and they're not calling. They just may not be quite in the full swing of things, but they definitely are going to come check out, you know, a, a call. And depending upon the time of year, earlier in the year, in my opinion, you're a better chance of, of calling in a little bit bigger bull cold calling as the season goes on and the big bulls pick up their cows, you're probably going to pick up, depending upon your calling sequence, a raghorn or a satellite bull hoping to hook a cow away from the bull or the guy upwind to sneak in, grab that cow, and get out of Dodge before he gets his ass kicked. Now, when it's a younger, like a two-and-a-half-year-old bull, those guys are just, they're young, they're dumb, they're coming in to see what's up. They know they're horny, but they don't know what horny is yet, right? They don't know what's going on exactly to their body, but they're very curious. And those are the ones that if you're just looking for a bull, especially with a stick bow, they come in really stupid, which is great. They haven't been shot at a lot, so they haven't learned a whole lot about getting shot at, like a six-year-old bull has, meaning they may cross a wide open meadow that's 40 yards across for the greater good of curiosity. Six-year-old bull's not going to do that. He's going to get the edge of that meadow. He's going to look around, but I don't see any elk, and he's going to bounce. Where a two-and-a-half-year-old bull, thank God, is dumber than shit. He'll cross that thing without blinking an eye. Sometimes they'll, they'll run across it like, oh, Mary's over there cow calling. Jesus, I'm going to go see Mary, and they'll fly across it. That's exactly, bulls probably, yeah. that's exactly what I'm looking for, Aaron. <laughs> exactly what I'm looking for. Well, it's funny. Chris and I did a seminar three, four years ago. And we kind of had a game plan of calling and Chris was talking about calling in bulls and it was standing room only at this, 
this seminar. Somewhere in the middle, I kind of interrupted Chris, and I said, everybody in uh, the audience right now, raise your hand if you're going to shoot the first thing you see. And this is on video. If there was 250 people in there, 245 raised their hand. <laughs> and I said, so if you're, if you're going to shoot anything, what Chris says might be a little bit different than what I'm going to tell you, because unless I draw a good tag, I'm over the counter, I'm, especially with a stick. I'm, I'm going to shoot pretty much anything, including a cow. I'm probably not going to shoot a calf, including a cow. Good thing about Colorado is you can buy a, a list B tag and you can shoot two elk, which is nice. But, um, you know, if, if that's the case, you really need to take into consideration. I get the guys that send me messages. Hey, man, just looking for like a 300-inch bull. Yeah, yeah. We, we all are. Like, <laughs> I've only shot three. Out of the price of 50 elk I've killed, only three or four have been over 300 inches, a pile of 250 to 280. And so it's it's really, if you are looking to shoot any elk, you probably don't want to bugle extremely aggressive unless you know that bull is, is right there to get him to come in. You're going to want to call a little bit more mildly, um, but you know, for that, because you're just trying to get an elk in front of you, you call really aggressive, a 250 type of a bull, uh, uh, you know, I say 250, three and a half year old, 250 inch bull. Why in the hell would he come into the nastiest, most aggressive bugle in the world, knowing he's going to get his ass kicked? I mean, not saying you two can't handle yourself. Are you going to pick a fight with uh, a Justin Gaethje, Mm -hmm. knowing you're going to get your ass beat for the greater good of vagina? you're probably going to say, you know, I'll just find vagina elsewhere and get the <laughs> hell away. And so, you, you know, you're, you, you need to think about that. And a lot of people watch these calls, watch these videos about calling where guys are like, get within 80 yards and bugle as nasty as you can. Well, yeah, if you're hunting in the land of giant bulls, that's great. If you're hunting in the land of Colorado where there's a hunter around every tree, you probably might want to do something a little different in certain scenarios. Um, Am I answering your guys' question so yeah, far? Yeah, I'm just going to keep on kind of digging and prying at you. Um, when you're saying call mildly or call more mildly, are you is most of your calling in, in a situation we're throwing at you where we're trying to just kill any bull, is most of it going to be cow calls? Or are you going to do some light, immature-sounding bugles? What's your approach with calling going to be? Yeah, and again, like with, with, uh, with cold calling, we're just trying to sound like a, a herd. We're not sounding like an aggressive herd or a herd where there's rutting action necessarily going on. We might throw in an estrus call every now and then, and it depends on the time of year as well. But let's say early season, yeah, not gonna not gonna bugle much. Like, mm-hmm. and when I say that specific scenarios, I might. I'm just gonna cow call when we're talking about that 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 summer feeding pattern type calling. I'm just trying to get, because I've got a stick bow and I'm at tree line, I'm just trying to get a, a cow or a bull that may be at 80 yards to maneuver over into 20 or 30. We're just by cow calling um, or cow and, like, you know, cow and calf talk, just so they're like, oh, I should go see, you know, wander over and see what's going on, nothing aggressive. You fast forward into the 12th through the 15th, we're going to throw in some bugles. Um, and, and what the hope is, is, um, if, if, if one of the callers, you know, in this cold calling scenario, or, or even we get a bull to light up, but in a cold calling scenario, 
he's going to bugle, I'm going to cow call, because the guy downwind, what the hope is, is if he bugles and it's not aggressive, most elk are going to be like, okay, there's a bull over there. I might have a chance, right? He may not whoop my ass. Let me sneak in here and assess the situation. Let me look, let me look at the feasibility of pulling a cow from this bull. He's going to hook downwind to me, who's cow calling, to, to try to come maybe snag me and also kind of look at the situation. That That's the hope. Now, if it's a draw tag and, uh, you know, you're looking at like the bull we were trying to kill this year, which was, you know, close to 370, we got him to 40 yards a couple of times. The, the calling situation at that point is a little bit different. If we've snuck in and we've got within 80 yards, yeah, we're going to bugle. We're going to try and piss them off. That doesn't work all the time, but it's going to be a lot more aggressive calling than it is earlier in the year in, in cold calling. Um, I don't bugle a whole, whole lot. I bugle some, but I kind of let it, uh, I base it off of what the elk are doing, meaning we wake up one morning like this year was a draw tag that I had, and the bulls are just screaming everywhere. We're, we're probably not going to bugle. We don't need to. They're already telling us where they are, so why would I bugle and say, hey, I'm here um, too much? Now, you might want to throw a bugle out there just to make sure there's, you know, you might have one close by that, that pipes out. You don't want to blow him out, so you're going to obviously do it, but not much because the elk are already doing their job for you to get in closer. So once we kind of assess the best situation when those elk are bugling and we, and we get in on them, uh, depending upon what goes on, what the elk are doing at that time is really going to depend on how much we bugle. And Chris talks about this a lot. And I agree with them. There are times where I want to scream at guys, blow a fucking cow call. <laughs> Cause they've listened way too much to Corey Jacobson or way too much to Primo mm-hmm. or whoever. And Corey can call. He's a world champion. I'm not. Are you guys? Not even close. <laughs> nope. Okay. So, Corey can call that well. And if you're trying to emulate him, that's awesome, right? That, that you want to be like Corey's a great caller, but you're not Corey, right? I, and, and so, you want to make sure you understand that Corey is looking for one bull making a certain note or a certain call that he knows he can get that bull fired up to come in. You two, and, and in my case, a lot of times me, I'm looking for able to come in. So they'll pass up bulls that you and I and a and hundred million other people would, would make an approach on or, or, or make a try at, because even though he may not come in screaming like we want, we still may be able to get him to come in and one in the bags better than two in the bush. We know he's there. We know he's calling. We know we got a chance. And, and so there's a lot of, of variables on this and it's really hard to talk about it and knock it out of the park on a podcast. You can give advice, but mm-hmm every situation different and a, a good example this year Cody and I my, my one of my hunting partners when we snuck in on a bull that was was bugling I thought he sounded a little bit older than he was so to Cody Cody snuck forward to 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 make the shot you know we we, we positioned him correctly for for win when the moment I bugled that bull started walking away he still bugled but that bull was probably all by himself or he had one cow, and he did not want to lose that that bull or that cow. Me, we snuck in super silent. I bugled, and the, all I'm telling him is, hey, I also have a penis, and I have horns on my head, and I potentially will kick your ass and take your cow. Bad move on my part. We didn't kill the elk. We did everything the textbook says. 
What we should have done is I should have snuck in there and did a semi-excited estrus call or a cow call with no bull call at all, no bugle. Because he may not have ran right in, but once he gave it enough time, meaning, okay, I don't think there's a bull over there, he would have snuck in right into range with Cody. Where if you listen to most of the preaching of elk calling, get within 100 yards, bugle. The elk are getting smarter the time and time goes on. And let's look at it this way. Um, I don't know how your guys' physical abilities are, but I can handle myself well enough. You're at a bar and you have a lady. You've spent two hours trying to take her home. And I walk up and instigate something. Are you going to say, hey, you got you want to get out of here? It's getting pretty busy. Or are you going to puff your chest up and fake it thinking, Jesus, this guy's going to fucking destroy me. But for the greater good of being a man, I'm going to go ahead and dive right into this and lose the chick too. You're probably going to get laid and take her home. Elk are no different. Why would he uh, approach an aggressive bull when he's got a cow and he may not be the biggest bull? He's probably going to do what he did, grab her and walk away. And so there's there's times where you're going to use these different calls. I'm probably confusing people by all this, but um, no. but there's certain times and certain things for different things. One question I had is, like, what I, what I think I've found, and I could be totally off basis, but, like, where we were hunting the past two years, I feel like there's never – like one giant herd there. It's like a bunch of tiny little herds and there might be some big herds and, and we've heard that there was by other people there, but it's almost like almost every bull has just a few cows with it. Um, three, three to five cows. Yeah. No, you're know, right. So it, when we, when we encounter a bull, it was really hard to just even pull him off those one or two cows, even with cow calls, you know, the cows would come in first or, or whatnot. And, you know, the first year was like you said, we just had a phenomenal year. We called in a lot of bulls and we seemed to do everything right. And then this past year, it was just different for us. Um, I still think we did pretty well. You know, we, we were in action every day, but it was just different for us this year. We, we went in and we're in elk the first day and we kind of said, Hey, like we're in here. Let's, let's not screw everything up. Let's just take our time and work through this through this area we're at and we would literally you know a couple of times we had bulls screaming up in a basin and we left them just to try to make a better plan on them the next day and then the next thing you knew somebody else was in there screwing it up on us you know so it, it's tough but you know i just kind of wanted to verify that and see if if you found the same thing with you know maybe there's a lot of cows and and all the bulls have one um but yeah that's what i kind of wanted to no, I, I think um, that you occasionally will find giant herds, but for the most part, um, you're, it, it's definitely more of a three to five, six, um, you know, cow type of, um, of, a, of, a, of a herd. It's not as, as mm-hmm. many um, as it, it maybe once was. And, you know, when you're doing these calling sequences, and I, I, um, I use this analogy, the bar analogy a lot, but... You know, sometimes, um, you know, you two are calling, you get a bull to bugle, um, and what got him to bugle was just mild cow calling back and forth. Mm -hmm. And then he bugles, and you guys are so excited, you immediately grab an estrus call or a bugle, and you, yeah, 
And all of a sudden now he, he stopped, um, you know, cause you're excited about calling and you think about it. If, if I'm trying to, you know, uh, pick up my, my, my wife at the bar, except she's not my wife yet. Right. I'm trying to just strike up a conversation and everything that I have said for the last 30 minutes at the bar is working. She seems attractive and, I don't know. Do you guys cuss on your podcast? Because I probably should tell no, the story yeah, you're fine. a little bit. <laughs> this Go. is a bad time to and tell everybody. you that we're sponsored by the uh, First Church of something. <laughs> now, I just... Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, Saturday I'll, anytime we do have one, I just put the little explicit sign. No biggie. <laughs> okay. So, you're, you're at the bar and you're, hey, and you're talking about the outdoors. And, you know, she's into hiking. You're into hiking. And then, you know, she said something about, well, you look like you're into hiking. You're pretty built. And immediately you're like, oh, she's interested. And the next thing you do is say, you know what? I'm hung like a horse. Will you go home with me? <laughs> you might pick her up, but the chances are slim. <laughs> and all the work you did for the last 30 minutes to an hour was perfect. And you'd managed to fuck that up in less than six seconds. Yep. That happens exactly like that in calling. Mm. where the scenario or the calling sequence you're using got the bull to to sound off or it got him to come in closer you get excited and you think about the four million videos that you watched or all the and and you change what you were doing thinking it would be better when what you're doing was enough because it was and, and again you know sometimes it will work if you grab an esther's call and scream on it if you're in that really, you know, that, that time where they're really fired up. But if they're really fired up, you already know that. I'm talking about elk that generally aren't as fired up, um, you know, and, and, and working on getting them in. And that goes for any kind of a conversation you're having with an elk. You know, if, if the bull is screaming crazy pissed off, you can be more excited. Uh, if he's semi-mild, bugles out of his bed, you know, you make you don't want to be as aggressive because what you kind of want to bounce it off of that, and it's no different. Like I, you know, the whole the bar, the meeting, the club, whatever scene. If you are trying to, um, um, you know, pick a fight with a guy, if the guy's not a fighter, you're probably not going to pick a fight with him very well. He's not going to be aggressive. If the elk is not in the mood to fight, he's going to grab him, whatever he got with him, whatever cows and move away and you really need to think about when you're calling and i am by no means an expert caller i know enough and i can get elk to come in but there's lots of people better but as far as screwing things up i don't know that anybody would argue with what i just said that is why Corey runs around screaming on a bugle a lot he's looking for that one elk he can provoke a fight with mm -hmm. he'll skip five of them to get the six one that will come in and fight him well, those other five are killable. You just got to use a different calling sequence, and that's the kind of hunt he wants. Yeah. And, and so those are things to think about. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in order for you to be a good elk hunter, you have to have, like, so much knowledge of all these different scenarios and here's the call I should use this time or the sequence or be aggressive or laid back. It, You know, we grow up about the only thing we have the opportunity to call and interact with is turkeys and it you know people try to compare the two but it's it's not the same i mean there's i feel like elk hunting 
I mean, people get lucky and kill bulls and on their first year out there, but it's it's a complicated uh, type of hunting for me. It's I never feel like I am sure about what I'm doing whenever I'm in the woods chasing elk around, and it's very frustrating for me. Like I said, we had that great well, hunt in 19, and we, 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 were, we were yeah. borderline cocky after that thinking – is this all the harder these things are to hunt? Because honest to God, Aaron, we had a the first morning we had that primos type hunt on public land. We had five five bulls, bulls called yeah. in by like ten thirty the first morning. Hundreds of bugles going on around us. We thought we had this in the bag, and then we go back in twenty twenty, and we were two idiots walking around, or three of us, I guess, walking around the woods. Just we like Kevin said, we were in elk. We were bumping them. They were circling us, getting our wind, and it it just it was really a humbling experience. Uh, and and it was like Aaron said that first morning was explosive, and then it died down throughout the week. and And we managed to call in other bulls throughout the week, but we had to work for it. You know, we'd mm-hmm. call in one that day, and and they were silent, and we'd just get on like we'd find like the darkest tent north facing slope we could, and get the wind right, and just. Uh, you know, slow play it or slow call or blind call it and would call in a few. Um, but we, you know, that, that first morning was great. And then this year, you know, I think a lot of our problem was the pressure from other hunters, um, not making excuses by any, any stretch. But, you know, a question I have, you know, Aaron is like that one situation we were in where that bull was up in that little basin on a watering hole we we heard him moving up the mountain and we got we just paralleled him the whole way up and we got to where we thought he was going to probably bed down and we got you know i don't know how close we were a couple hundred yards probably and we just started cow calling to him and he was just bugling his head off to every sound we made but he just he would not leave that area um what would you do in a situation like that would you go after him would you you know he- yeah, I would do. I'm I'm much more uh, aggressive than than some, um, but I, I would go after him, um, and I would do it without calling. Um, meaning, if he's making enough noise to where I can, you know, get in on him, um, I, I would I would definitely try to get you know more aggressive because if if what you're doing is not working, um, meaning you know he's there and he's not coming in, you, you don't really have anything to lose. Um, yeah. You know, as far as getting getting closer and pushing the issue, because you're already not killing him, you might as well, you know, potentially not kill him with a little effort and get closer, because you, you got a lot better chance of killing him, putting a little more pressure on him. Now, you can blow him out that way, but if if the wind is right, and let's just do a, a, a an exact scenario, uh, the three of us, you know, we we walk into an area, we we get to a spot, we bugle, we get a bull to bugle back, um, you know. At that point, generally, I immediately run closer to him. But let's say the next time I bugle, um, you know, I get closer to him and I bugle. He doesn't bugle until he's, again, 200 yards from me or 400, right? He's keeping that safe distance, right? He's, he's talking to me. He's making me happy. He's making me feel like I know what I'm doing. Well, the problem is he's, he's not making me feel like I'm actually going to kill him because he's keeping that safe distance, which happens a ton. At that point, yeah, I sneak in real quiet and I creep because, you know, if I've got time anyway, and I will creep and still hunt and get as close as I possibly can. And when I do get that close, I'm not going to bugle. 
unless I've seen him, I know he's a giant, uh, or I, I see him breaking trees or whatever. At that point, I'm honestly probably going to cow call in hopes he comes down just to, mm-hmm. to, to, to hook me and, and, and grab me. Um, the bugle thing, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this if you've hunted out enough, there's a lot of times you'll get a bill of the bugle back 50 times, mm-hmm. but he'll never get closer than 150 yards. Mm-hmm. He keeps that safe distance. Yep. Did that happen to you guys? Yeah. Yeah, that, well, both years it happened. And uh, in 2019, we climbed, you know, a lot higher in elevation trying to find more elk because we blew them, you know, that first day was on fire and then it kind of slowed down and we got up on top. I call it up on top because we climbed quite a bit of elevation and set up and we, what, cow called maybe once and this bull ripped off and came charging in and he came in from a direction we weren't expecting him to. Uh, we could smell elk and we, we thought they were in a different area. At least Aaron did. Well, the wind was kind of <laughs> swirling. It was uh, it was still morning, so we were getting sort of a mixture of the thermals coming up the mountain, and then every once in a while the prevailing winds would pick up. And I thought I could smell it when the thermals were coming up, so we set up for and that. And I thought I smelled it coming when we were coming up that rock face. Yep. And, yeah, so we set up the way that we thought they were, and, and this bull came charging down through this meadow right in behind us, and he he ended up winding us and he was a big bull and he went back up and what I'm what we were assuming it was like midday. So he was probably with his cows bedded down and when we set up and cow called, he thought one of his cows got up and was leaving and he was just trying to round her up and he came flying down and winded us and then just went back up and we got really aggressive with him and moved up and just we just started hammering on a bugle to him and he bugled back for a couple hours and he just kept that four safe. or five if you remember right we yeah. spent all afternoon with that bull he just kept that safe distance and finally we got super aggressive and aaron did you just snuck into what you were 20 or 30 yards yeah, from him yeah. just couldn't kill him but yeah we've had that happen for sure well and, and like, actually one of the things you just brought up is a good you know i some of the things i'm talking about is me hunting you know, solo, I've killed a, a pile of elk solo. It generally ends up with a, a frontal shot, which I, some people don't like, but it's mm-hmm. what you're forced with when you, when you call solo, if you have a, a caller, um, you know, usually we'll flip for it. We'll rock paper. Well, we Rochambeau, we'll, we'll rock paper scissors it. If he's vocal, um, and not moving away and he's, he's just having a heyday on a ridge line, just running back and forth screaming, but he's not coming in what I'll do is I'll keep that safe distance. Say, all right, Kevin, look, head in there, you know, leave your pack with me. I'll pack it to you. Go super stealthy, get as close as you can. As I'm bugling, right. I'm just getting him to let you know where he's at. As mm-hmm. you sneak in and you get into that 50 yard distance, just, you know, just cow call. He's going to come, you know, when you're in that, that 50 yard hundreds, a little iffy, but 50, it's, he's probably going to come. Um, and, and in some cases, depending on the situation, you might be sneak in and shoot the damn thing. But if you have a caller there, a lot of times it's good. Leave your pack with him and just sneak in. If you've got a bull making a ton of noise, it's just not. Usually it's like a three-and-a-half-year-old bull that's just happy and freewheeling and we're screaming his head off and he's just not coming. Um, sometimes it's an older bull, but generally what I've found, it's like a three-and-a-half-year-old. Have one guy go in and, and shoot it and the other dude just literally – bugle every now and then to get them to make some noise so you can sneak in and and you guys may have have tried that but you can be very successful with that yeah that's kind of uh 
kind of what we ended up doing. Yeah. And that was the one time we did get an opportunity at that bowl was sort of doing the same thing. We'd want, well, one person was sneaking, another person was calling, just to kind of try to keep his attention elsewhere. And like you said, uh, this is getting him to rip off a bugle every once in a while. So we knew where he was at. We chased that bull for, from about late morning until just about dark. And, uh, we were never able to kill him, but it was one of those experiences that we both learned a ton from. Yeah, and then that satellite bull came into me, and I had him at – I was at full draw, and he uh, – it was a frontal shot, like you said, Aaron, and I just had this one little aspen going right up through the middle of his chest, and that's where he stopped at, like, 10 yards. And I knew if I let down, he was going to see me and literally went to failure. I could not hold that bow back any longer and had to – I just – collapsed and as soon as i collapsed he he whirled around and took off but um yeah we had bulls that ended up coming in doing that same exact thing just trying to get you know sneak in on that other bull so mm -hmm. lots can happen when you're in the right situation i guess and um we don't we don't really know what we're doing we just kind of uh listen like like we said listen to a lot of chris's podcasts and yours and try to gather as much information but it's it's nice having somebody on a podcast to explain our scenarios and get you know feedback on them so Aaron one question I had for you like that scenario we had where we chased the elk for four or five hours and at the end of the day we did end up spooking that bull I mean I don't think he smelled us but just the pressure we were putting on him and the noise he ended up getting his cows and hightailing it out of there i shouldn't say hightailing it but he got out of there and he worked up that ridge yeah how long do you wait before you go back into an area like that man it it depends like man we talked about this on the the, the podcast recently you know i've seen elk you know literally run like a full mountain range up and over the top and totally into another area that's not huntable from the, the camp that I was, 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 am, am currently at, mm -hmm. um, you know, ha having said that, if, if there's a lot of elk in that area, you may have blown those elk out, but you may not have blown all of the elk out. Um, you, you know, so it, it's, it's hard to say generally I'll leave that area alone, meaning I'm not going to hike out and, and, and go to a whole new area, but that specific spot, I may not come back there for a day or so, let it calm down and, and then hunt another area. Um, you know, I, again, it, it, it really depends on the bull to cow ratio one. And then just the total numbers. Cause you know, there's a few spots that we have that are honey holes that are pockets that will blow an elk out that morning. And, and that night, another elk has already taken its place in, in that mm -hmm. honey hole. Cause it's, um, it, it, you know, whether it's generally, obviously it's got wallows and water, um, which are key, right. And, and, and if that area you're talking about, when would you hit it again? If that area has got one of the only water sources, you, you probably can hit it pretty frequently and be okay. Um, in comparison to an, uh, a spot that doesn't have water. So it really depends. Yeah. Yeah. I can, uh, yeah, I understand that. Um, one other thing that I'm just keep throwing all these questions at you, but I feel like the area we're hunting is not a vast area. It's actually not far from a pretty decent sized town. Um, I feel like we could easily cover the whole area in a couple of days. So I am always worried about us blowing out elk. 
um, in general, how long would you hunt an area? I'm doing a horrible job asking this question because I'm looking back at about the third or fourth day we were hunting this particular area. A couple of boys from Arkansas had chased elk all over the countryside, blowing a some kind of bugle tube that sounded like it was half turkey, half elk. And somehow, God willing, they did kill an elk. <laughs> but I one thing I look back on is I think that we hunted that area too long. We stayed in there for seven days. We devoted our entire hunt to that one particular area. And when I'm saying an area, it's probably um, five five miles north to south, one or two miles east to west was sort of our huntable area. Uh, at what point do you would you pull the plug, Aaron? I mean, if you've spooked, not spooked, but bumped elk maybe every day or bumped one or two elk every day and you knew a couple of boys that were in there from Texas or Arkansas and they were bumping elk, are you sticking in there just because you're bumping elk or are you going to pull the plug at some point and go try somewhere else? No, no, I'll, I pull the plug. Um, I don't, uh, I mean, I'm, I, and it sounds like you guys are as well. I'm lucky I'm, I'm, I'm fit enough to where, you know, I can, it's not going to kill me to hike out and hike back in the same day to another area. Um, the, the one thing that's, you know, that's tough and, and it depends on where you're at, but if you're really, if you're up pretty high, um, and, and you bump elk, Generally in, in Colorado, if you're up pretty high, when I say that meaning you're bumping them at 11,000, 11,500, it is a chore to to get back on them uh, depending upon where they go. So a lot of times rather than hiking, um, you know, if you're backpacking and hiking to find elk again or get back on them, it's almost easier to, to hike out and hike back into a different area depending upon how aggressively they've been, you know, bumped. And, you know, one of the things that, kind of the beauty of hunting high country mule deer uh as far as elk goes you get to watch a lot of elk behavior and 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 uh and and things go on with pressure and and we're we're not really focusing on elk at all i mean if a big one ran in front of us we'd shoot it but we we see elk every day and we're hunting mule deer one of the things you'll see especially when you're in those rougher areas is you'll see somebody bump elk that they're there every day in the summer they would continue to be there during season um, guys go in and they bump them. And when we're up high, right, we're, we're glassing for mule deer. So we're able to see all of this and those elk will literally go a mile and a half before they stop. And that means if you're already four miles in now, they're five and a half. And if your camp is at three, you're looking at literally doubling dang near what you've already hiked to get back on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you'll watch those guys hunt that area for the next three to four days with not an elk in sight because they, they've pushed them. Now, again, in, in thicker timber, it's a little bit different. That's one of the reasons Roosevelt's, if you bump them, they run like 300 yards. They're in old growth. You can't see them anyway. They're not scared. They don't go very far. Well, Rocky Mountain elk, they will run, uh, probably the farthest I've ever seen elk run is two and a half miles where they were bumped really bad. Um, but, you know, you think about it, two and a half miles for a human when you're packing 50 pounds of shit in and you're already three miles in, that's a daunting task. So, again, it's almost easier to hike out and go to a different spot. Yeah, I got you. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, hindsight, I think that we did devote too much time to that area. And unfortunately, in a lack of planning on my part, uh, we probably didn't have a real great 
game yeah. plan for a second or third spot. That That's what makes it tough when you're out of state like that and, you know, you only come out there once a year until you really get a, a few spots nailed down to go check out. It's it's hard to leave elk. Even, even after you bump some elk, you get into more elk, it's hard to leave that area and go to an area that you could put potentially run into the same issues when you only have you know those seven days and you don't live out there it's mm-hmm. it, it makes it difficult well i mean they're saying you know go with what you know is like ever thus right now right like it it would be difficult for me to talk anyone into going to a brand new spot they've never seen mm-hmm. never touched when they've been in elk every day into us or not every day, but frequently into a spot they're currently in. Yeah. That's easier said than done. I mean, you know, truly like, uh, you know, the best burger you've ever had, is it whatever, you know, I don't know, pick a burger spot. Well, you go there 150 times and you know, the 151st, your burger wasn't very good. Pretty hard to say never going here again. No different than elk. I mean, if you're successful, it's difficult to, to, to talk somebody into pulling out. Now, if you're the one on on the ground and there's more people there that year, um, you know, there's more pressure and all of those things, it's a lot easier to talk your way hiking, talk your way into hiking out and going to a new spot. And, and again, Colorado, and, and I've been bashed for this, I am strongly for uh, over-the-counter with cap numbers. I, I definitely really like the idea of people thinking about, do you want a great hunt or do you want to go hunting? I want a great hunt. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want to just go hunting and pack my bow around. And so whether it be fitness that gets you there, you hike in farther, you hike into rougher areas. uh, You're more mobile. You hit every, you hit three different spots, three days each, unless one of them's just producing gold. Um, It's a really good idea to have a plan A, B, and C because, you know, New Mexico, Kansas, Texas, name the state. There's going to be a lot of people in there giving you some serious competition. So, Yeah, this year there was a lot of people. Uh, seemed to be the general theme that they were all uh, all from Texas and all said July every time we talked to them. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of Texas people in there hunting this year. I don't know if that's typical of Colorado, but the, the unit we hunted was over the counter in – 18 and 19 and we hardly ran into anybody and i don't know if it was coronavirus related or what but in 2020 the unit was a draw and there was people everywhere they were mostly texans but i don't think that our hunt was a failure because those people were in there but it definitely added a different element to the hunt than we had in the previous years which might have contributed to our lack of success but it's it's hard to say Um, yeah well i mean the success thing too, like, you know, I'd say your first trip was a major success. You didn't kill anything, but you, you know, called in a pile of elk. That's a, that's a great success. The, the thing that, uh, and believe me guys, I live here and I've killed elk my entire life. We get our ass kicked, maybe not quite as bad as you guys because we live here, but this year was a prime example. This was the hardest I've ever hunted for elk and I didn't, I didn't kill what I was after. And it wasn't for lack of time off by 26 days back there. Wasn't for not knowing the area. I know the area. I can shoot. I can call. It was just a weird year. Uh, you know, for elk, we had lots of elk bugling. We didn't have anything super 
you know, aggressive and maybe a better caller would have got him in, but you're going to have years like that. You're going to also have years where the numbers are down for whatever reason. Um, Hunter, you know, as far as Hunter, um, you, you, they're, you're just not getting as much pressure. Um, or you find a specific pocket or a cow goes into estrus and makes you feel like the greatest caller in the world. All of those things happen, but I would just plan on, you know, really hoping for one or two great opportunities every five days. Mm -hmm. That's about the best you're going to get on an over-the-counter hunt as far as if you were going to try to to quantify it. You guys sound like you had a much better opportunity the first year, but the second year, did you guys have a couple good opportunities every five days? Was that close? Yeah. It cows. I mean – uh, yeah, first call, first setup, you could have killed a cow, but yeah. that now that it was a draw, yet 2019, you could have, you know, killed her, and I could have killed four or five, well, not four or five, three or four cows in 2019, and I elected not to because I killed a cow in Utah, and I really wanted to kill a bull. So every single time the cows were coming in, I could see a bull, and I just elected not to shoot her, and Aaron wanted to kill me for that, but I, I didn't because he was willing to shoot a cow that year. Um, and then this year we couldn't shoot a cow and Aaron had all the opportunities to shoot a cow on a spike and he couldn't this year. And, uh, it just, it didn't work out for us that way, but you did have an opportunity at, I didn't have any opportunities at bulls or cows. I didn't have any opportunities to shoot, uh, this year you had a cow, a spike, a cow spike. And then that one bull later in the week. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we still, we still had opportunity, I, I guess you could say. Just I don't think any of the opportunities were, other than that one cow, were just ideal, you know? Yeah, and we're, we're quote-unquote, calling that hunt a failure in 2020, but in reality it wasn't. We're just comparing to the 2019 hunt, which was bulls bugling everywhere. So when you compare the two, 2020 was a failure. But I hunted um, Colorado up near – gunnison one year and hunted all week and never saw a single sign of an elk so to go out there and even have cow interactions or spike interactions was i guess a success in hindsight yeah i i would say you know i mean i definitely hear a, a lot of um stories you know from you know I, I would say realistic thousands of of hunters that are are heading out west and and, and, you know, their their version of getting into elk, they bumped some, which doesn't really necessarily count. as If you scared the shit out of elk, I wouldn't chalk that up as a, mm-hmm. a victory of getting into them if you just wandered into them, you know, aimlessly. When I when I say getting into them, you're calling them and you're getting elk interaction. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I, um, I think that when you you know, head out, head out West and make your first time. So not necessarily where you guys are at now, your first time coming out. The, the one thing I would definitely say is shoot anything that walks in front of you, your first try, um, you know, to be semi mobile, like you may not have the fitness level to be super mobile you, and, and you might, but be, be willing to at least move your, 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 if you're backpacking in your baby camp or your, or your, your camp, you know, maybe you start out at a mile and a half in and your farthest you'll go in is three miles and move your camp in accordingly in or start at three and, and move it back. Because a lot of times you're going to have hunters that road hunt that will will hunt a mile or, or close to. 
and then you're going to have the backpack hunters that are three miles in. Then there's kind of a void in the middle. And so you want to try to be as, as mobile as you can, if, if at all possible. Um, you know, as, as I'm, I'm saying that, you guys didn't ask that question, but with, with what you're, you know, you're talking about, you know, sometimes, when you, you know, success or failure, the biggest success you're going to hope for is having an actual call in where a bull is standing broadside in front of you at a distance you can hit it at. That's about as successful as a hunt you can get, whether you kill it or not your first year. If you call in a five by five, uh, well, let's look at it this way. If you called in a, a, a three and a half year old five by five, let's compare that to a three and a half year old uh, 10 point whitetail. What are the chances of somebody going and, and doing that on public land uh, their first time hunting whitetail? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, not good. In my yeah. opinion. So, well, yeah, no, I would be in the same opinion. Um, so, you know, that that's, that's a victory, and, and you're going to learn quite a bit at that point. And, and, Kevin, I don't think there's anything wrong if you wanted to shoot a bull. I mean, you you, you got to have – you know, goals now going back with you knowing now what you, uh, you know, knowing what you know now, would you have shot a cow, um, in 2020? No, I I wouldn't have personally, like I didn't regret that at all. Um, cause I'm stubborn as hell like that. I really wanted to kill a bull. So I, I didn't regret it. Um, this year going out there, I would have done the same thing. I would have held out for a bull. But not me. I'm a a different type of hunter than Aaron. Like I really like, not that I'm a a horn hunter or anything like that, but like, I just really wanted to kill a bull where Aaron is more probably like you, Aaron. He, he like, he loves to kill shit. And and that's like, I, I'm not as like kill happy. I guess you could say, like I hold out a lot more in Pennsylvania for, for deer than Aaron does. Um, he he shoots a lot more does in Pennsylvania than I do. Like that's just our personalities, I guess. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have changed anything that I did, you know, for that. But now, let me ask you this: If you wouldn't, have, if your 2019 year sucked, would you have killed a cow in 2020? Yep, I would have. And and that's the only thing I was leading up to is sometimes, and believe me, it's happened to me. You have false hope from the prior year mm-hmm. like it was cranking last year i'm a bull or nothing and then you go in there and you're like wow we're, we're talking you know pinto for to ferrari or ferrari what happened <laughs> right and <laughs> yeah. so now you've got stuck in your mind a bull is very doable and i would say by day three you need to really assess and i'm not saying you should have changed your mind but other people might want to you you might want to assess and say okay this is not the same year. There's more pressure. The elk aren't bugling like they were. We're having a lot harder time. Now, again, if you're not in it and you don't eat the meat as much, like in my case, I got two 100-pound Great Pyrenees that are growing like crazy that eat nothing but raw meat, and Amy and I eat wild game every day. So yeah. for me, you know, I didn't shoot. I could have shot I don't know how many cows this year, but I shot a lot of other animals. So for me, it was a little different. Um uh, that I, I really just had that goal of shooting a big bull and have plenty of other animals in the freezer. Having said that now, shit, I would have shot that first four by four that was in front of me on day two and called for Cody, knowing that I got my ass handed to me for 26 days trying to shoot a giant bull. Mm-hmm. And so 
including me, sometimes you need to get a kick in the ding ding of to wake up. But if you're just a guy that wants to shoot, you know, a bull, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I, I, I would say that sometimes you have to maybe um, lower your standards a bit when, when the seasons are rougher. Yeah, you know, if, and it's if you, if you want to get enough on the ground. I'm glad you said that because I, I definitely. Looking back, I did, you know, like the last day or two, I was like, yeah, I'm going to shoot a cow if I get the opportunity now. I think, um, you know, in 2019, I I said that, you know, like that last day. But for me, it's different too. Like in 2019, we drove out. This year, we, we flew out. So like, I think that has a lot to do with it too, with getting the meat home. If you drive out, it makes it a lot easier, you know, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, you're exactly right. You know, if I went out and had a couple of bad years, I would be shooting the biggest, fattest cow that came in right off the get go. Not me. I could have the hunt of a lifetime in 2019, kill a 300 inch bull <laughs> and next and year, 2020 a nice juicy cow walks out and i'm gonna smoke her i'm gonna <laughs> zip an arrow right <laughs> yeah you would i have zero self-restraint with that stuff aaron zero well and i mean there's nothing wrong with either you know viewpoint on it i mean i don't i you know i i i do like there is certain area whitetail hunting there are certain areas where you know, the, the, you know, the guy that owns the land, like, I don't want you to shoot anything under five. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's, that's what I got in front of me. Right. And, and then there's other times where, Oh, like mule deer, I always try to shoot a four year old mule deer or older, mm-hmm. a four and a half year old. But in 2019, we had to go to a, I said we had, we had to go to, we went to Alaska on a goat hunt. When I came back in, I couldn't find any deer. I, I shot a three year old deer. Um, you know, but when I went in, I, I mean, the first trip we were in, I missed a 203-inch. I got killed with a rifle later on in the year, a, a 203 at 12 yards. Um, I had every in, – in, I mean, I got the most out of that $40 tag you could possibly get. Um, <laughs> and I ended up shooting a three-and-a-half-year-old mule deer. But, um, you, you know, you, you do, I think, if, if you set your goals, be, be prepared to – one of two things – if stick to your guns and prepare for an ass whooping or consider altering them on day three to five yep. and assess what's in, in front of you. Meaning if the elk are cranking, why hell you might say, you know what? I might try to shoot a bigger one. We're in the honey hole, mm-hmm. but more than most likely you're going to probably say, okay, I might shoot a cow, you know, or I might, you know, I had my goal set on a 280 plus bull. I'm just going to shoot any bull. And, that's part of the problem with OT. When I say problem, I mean, that's part of the realism of OTC hunting. You could have hunting fool Eastman's or some other jack wagon organization mention it somewhere that this unit is good and totally screw that area up for a couple of years. And it happens every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You do have some restrictions that, that one little calf in 2019, you could have shot. <laughs> yeah, she, was she like looked like a teddy bear. Yeah, she was like, she was like I've seen white-tailed does <laughs> bigger than her. Yeah. Um, changing the subject a little bit, Aaron, but still kind of sticking with Colorado elk hunting. I mean, obviously, you guys have a lot of stuff going on in the state of Colorado with just kind of the general direction that the uh, population is going, and then 
with the reintroduction of wolves looking like it's going to happen. What's your What's your general outlook on the hunting in Colorado right now? Um. Well, I <laughs> I hunt out of state a lot. Um. I uh, I think that uh, you know mule deer will 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 be okay. I I think that for the next few years or or, or you know depending upon how many wolves they reintroduce, there's already a predator problem. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be okay for a short period of time. I think, honestly, what's really going to take a hit uh, initially is elk and moose from the, you know, with the wolf thing. Um, you know, and again, it depends on how many they introduce, where they introduce them, how fast they, they travel. But, you know, right now, really, with Colorado is, is a, a lot of hunting pressure. Um, you know, which you guys have, have seen, it can totally alter um an area from one year to the next is is pressure um and you know depending upon what colorado you know does we are by far the most freewheeling with with out-of-state hunters mm-hmm. uh which obviously you guys love that um well actually well, i you know i don't myself i've got points in quite a few states i'd be more than happy to hunt colorado once every two or three years, like you were saying, would you rather hunt a lot or would you mm-hmm. rather have a good hunt? I'd I'd hunt Colorado once every three years on a draw tag if I knew it was going to be a better hunt. So I agree with you there, Aaron. Even as an out-of-stater, I, I'm on board with you. I think yes, you're 100% here. correct. And that's where... Oh, and, and it was... Go ahead, Aaron. Go ahead. Uh, well, no, go, go ahead because it, it, it'll probably intertwine with what you're about to say, but go ahead. <laughs> Well, just for me, I'm with Aaron as well. I, I'm putting in, you know, we're kind of gathering points in other states and using Colorado as a, hey, we can go have a decent hunt on an over-the-counter tag and and just build points in these other states. Um, you know, that's kind of what I'm doing. So, mm-hmm. well, and, and and I get in my position. Obviously, I can go on other hunts if I if I don't draw a tag or I, I'm I'm very blessed with how much I I get to to hunt, but. Um, when you, I had like a guy message me that I was a whiny little bitch. Uh, I didn't know what I was talking about. Yeah, that was Kevin. Uh, well, I had more. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was, it was, was crazy. Cause I'm like, look, man, I, I, I get it. You want to come out West every year. Have you killed an elk? No. Oh, okay. So you went bow hiking. Nothing wrong with that. But if I said every other year, you would have a 70% increase in, in the chances of killing an elk. Mm-hmm. Would you take that option? You know, he's thinking about it, and I'm like, okay, so let's say I said every three years you can come out here, but every three years you have a hunt of a lifetime you will never forget, and you always have at least a shot opportunity or two or a call in a day, or you hunt every year and you barely even see elk. To me, the one that the, 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 the two to three year plan is a hell of a lot better than the one year plan. And and I know everybody, you know, go to Idaho, shit there mm-hmm. over the counter, switch it up, right? I mean, whatever you got to do, I, I understand everybody's goal is to come out and hunt elk out west, but I am much more for a fun, good, uh, quality hunt than I am uh, bow hiking. And uh, bow hiking sucks, and I'm really against bow hiking. And having hunted Colorado a ton and some other states, 
it's getting to the point now where it's not impossible at all to get into elk every year, but it is certainly getting more the exception than the rule to, to have that, you know, that, that crazy primos type calling sequence, uh, especially if you're not fit, if you're mm-hmm. fit and you can be super mobile, that's a totally different story. But if you're semi sort of not sort fit and you're kind of locked into car camping and in and out, you might kill an elk, but it's, 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 it's you know, not, 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 it's definitely, it's possible, but not real probable. I don't know over the camera tag. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, realistically, and this has been talked about on other podcasts, if you're playing the point games in multiple states, four or five states, you can hunt elk every year. You might do what you said, hunt Colorado every third year, but maybe every every three years you have enough points to draw a general Wyoming tag, or every other year you pull a tag in Montana or get lucky and snag one in New Mexico. I mean, you could realistically be chasing elk every year on draw units and never have to bank on an over-the-counter. But a lot of people do what Kevin and I are doing. We're building points in Idaho, or, uh, Utah and Montana and Wyoming. But the whole time we're doing that, saving up for a good tag there, we're all overpopulating Colorado and hunting it to death in these over-the-counter units, which, you know, we learn a lot. But basically what you said, it's just a bow hike for most people. Well, and maybe you just want to get away from your wife or she wants you to get away from her. Like I, I, I get it, right? but, um, that's a $600 trip to get, you know, that's a mm-hmm. $600 trip to see nothing. Yep. Um, and, and, and that's, it's difficult. And it, I get it. You know, I, you guys know my background. I work construction. I lived in a one bedroom apartment. I slept on an air mattress for years to hunt more. And, and, and I get not having the financial means or the being as, as, as blessed, let's say, as, as I am right now with a job, I have to hunt as much as I do. But still, if you said, uh, you know, hey, Aaron, you're, you're going to hunt Idaho next year and you're going to hunt Colorado the year after that. And, and you know what? The year after that, you're not going to hunt elk. You're going to you're going to hunt mule deer and antelope. Um, but, hey, you're going to have a really good chance every year of shooting something uh, and compared to. Nope, you're going to hunt elk in Colorado every year, and there's going to be 57 cars at the trailhead. And, uh, you know, oh, by the way, the best chance you're going to have is a 5 by 5 spring in front of you running for his dear life. I like option A a lot better than B. Yep. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, you know, kind of switching gears, Aaron, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um what are you shooting right now? I know you've shot a lot of different trad bows. I'm kind of curious what you're shooting right now. Um, I have a a border tempest. Well, I have two a border tempest riser, and then I have a few sets of limbs. But what I've been, uh, you know, killing almost everything with this year was the um, uh, herbus limb. It's the kind of a super curved uka limb. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I won most of the tournaments this year. I shot with the double X uh, uka limb. And then I, I got these from uh, Dean at Three Rivers. I, I ordered them up and was kind of weird with the let off a little bit, you know. But yeah. uh, Cody Greenwood, the uh, trad dab dude, was like, you just got to try them. So I, I uh, you know, kind of stuck it out and got used to that let off and have had good success. I don't, uh, I, I honestly, I don't see me moving away from that border Tempest Riser. I'm a pretty big fan of it so far. So. Yeah, we, we, Sid sent us one to test for him a few years ago and 
it was with, uh, I think they had the CVX limbs on it and it was a nice shooting bow. Um, I just couldn't get, get used to the, the looks of it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and, and that was a big thing that drew me to it. I like that bridged riser look. Yeah. Um, and, and I, you know, you, you get a hundred people to message you 50 or like that blows off from the other fifties. Like, you know, why don't you pick up a 50 cal or whatever <laughs> you hear from sad guys. And, you know, I, I haven't tried thin limbs at all. Um, I've had good luck with, uh, uh, you know, the Uka limbs. And so that's just what I, I shot. Yeah. I, I actually didn't even order a set of his, his limbs or anything. Um, those, and C- I, those CVX limbs are pretty cool. They, you know, they're kind of like, they're a conventional limb, but he considers them like a super curve and they do roll over to some degree. Um, just not as extreme, you know? Gotcha. And I, I just wasn't that familiar with his limb. I've, I've heard a bunch of pros and cons and, uh, you know, the, the riser though, as far as the, the geometry of it, the deflex, I liked all of the adjustments on it. I liked mm-hmm. where you could add the weights. Um, you know, so, I mean, I've only shot a few animals with that. I was shooting a Satori riser with the Uka limbs before. Um, but it, I'm a little bit nervous. I hate to say this. I'm going to get bashed. I, I, uh, I like things that don't break. Um, yep. it is difficult to break an aluminum riser. Mm-hmm. And I have had really good luck with that monolithic carbon technology. I mean, today we were on a mountain lion hunt and, we were on two cats, got clipped out on both, and I literally ate shit so bad I slid 15 foot off a cliff with the bow dragging the entire way, and at not one time was I like, oh, man. I didn't even look at it. I just kept climbing where with the, I get a little nervous with wood bows. Yeah, you've said the same thing, Aaron. Mm-hmm. You, you know, thought about that when we go out. In PA, it's not that big of a deal, just wait till hunting. But when we go out west, you always mention you wouldn't mind having a, an aluminum riser with you just because of that that same situation. Yeah, I mean, I always think about you're packing in with seven days worth of gear. You got 50 or 60 pounds, so you you lose a little bit of stability there. And you got the extra weight. All it would take is one slip to fall and crack a riser or damage a limb and you an entire hunt short of running up to RMS gear and spending a thousand bucks on a new setup, your entire hunt's over. So, yeah, I mean, although I don't like the looks of the metal oh, risers, you um, yeah, maybe you did. You there? You there, bud? Oh, there you are. Yeah. I lost it for a second. Um, yeah. And I heard you say something about trip to RMS and then I lost you. Yeah. I was just, I was saying, you know, carrying a wooden bow through the woods, especially on a mountain hunt like that, it's kind of a gamble. And although I don't like the looks of a metal riser, it it definitely gives you some added insurance whenever you're in the woods that things aren't going to break. If you do exactly what you did today, slide 15 feet down a mountain and use that thing as your ice pick to try to get back up. I mean, it's nice having that, that insurance to know things aren't going to break, but God, they are ugly. (laughs) I like it. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, I guess. But yeah, exactly. how many, and I'm not going to mention, I won't mention brands. What would you guys guess? How many risers and how many limbs have I cracked in my short five-year stint in traditional archery? Oh. And figure high. See, well, and that, that's surprising to me. You, you must be really, really hard on equipment because I am, and I've, I've only 
I've been doing it. I ain't no, I don't hunt like you do, Aaron. Don't get me wrong, but since 2011, I've been bow hunting, trad bow hunting, and I've only broke two sets of limbs. So, since you said hi, no. I'm gonna guess ten. I'll yeah, go. You underjudged it. I'll yeah, I'll <laughs> guess fifteen. But I've I've been nothing but a trad bow since '07. Now I'm not a guy that jumps from one bow to another very often. I've in that span of time, I've had about three bows. I've never broken a bow, so I'm anxious to hear what your number is. It it, it actually is 15 limbs and three risers, and I don't think it's necessarily um, how rough I am on the bow because I I don't really, you know, I, I pay attention to the bows when I you know hunting. I'm very you know diligent about that, but. But one thing I have found, and, and Randy Cooling and I have talked about this, and this isn't a, a bragging thing, or it just is what it is. I shoot more than any human I have ever met, probably by a multiplier of four. Um, I'll shoot four or 500 arrows in a day, hmm. and I'll do that every day. Wow. And, and that's not a bullshit number. I will, and that, well, four to five is a little high, but 200 easily a day. And, you know, Randy and I talked at once. He said, dude, you're, you're just you may just shoot too much. And he said, and I know a bow should handle it. He goes, but really, I, I mean, 200 arrows uh, to 300 arrows a day for seven months. Uh, it's just a lot of arrows, you know, fi- you know, firing down range. It's not like I shoot light arrows. I shoot 600 grains at a, you know, 580 to 630 usually. Um, plus the mountain hunting, the different conditions, the different climates. Like today, when we lit out, off, uh, when we struck on the first cat, it was three degrees. By the time we got back, it was 42 or 44. Mm. Um, then it goes in my garage, right, which is going to be colder than hell tonight. And then if I hunt in a, a Alaska or something, you know, obviously really a lot of condensation, and which is why I'm shooting a pure carbon monolithic limb and a straight aluminum riser now. Because I'm scared to death, I'm going to break another limb and a riser. Yeah. Even yeah. though it's ugly. Yeah, I I would, you know, just my personal, I would go more on the, the temperature change and the weather, you know, because not just playing devil's advocate. Like, I've had some bows that I, for I don't know how many years and put, you know, you put a lot of arrows through them short, you know, short term. But I put a lot of arrows through them, like, long term and haven't had any issues. I can't shoot it long term because they break. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's what's crazy about it to me. I, I'll where's tell you, where's the risers breaking on you at? You know what the riser thing? I wouldn't um, I wouldn't even chalk up the riser to something um, mentionable. Um, you know, I've never had a widow riser break or anything like that, but uh, it, it, it was bad glue. Um, as I understand it, industry-wide, there was a bad mm-hmm. batch of glue from yep. a glue company. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that's fair to mention risers. Um, limbs, on the other hand, totally different. But yeah. bad glue and, and uh, you know, shooting a lot, and, and it didn't snap in half. It just, their hairline cracked. Um, and, and that two of them were for one specific bow company. So I, I don't know that I would. I would count that, uh, but the limbs, I have, I have had some crazy problems with, with limbs for sure. That, that's incredible. Um, one thing I've noticed going from PA to out West, because our humidity is a lot higher here. If you have a bow that has a lot of different laminations in the riser, especially phenolic that doesn't absorb any moisture at all, 
Yeah. If I go from PA and then I hunt wherever, Wyoming, Colorado, Nebraska, for a week, at the end of that trip, I can feel there's a small ridge every place that there's a piece of phenolic in that riser where the wood has just dried out a little bit on that hunt. And the phenolic hasn't absorbed it all, so the wood has shrunk, the phenolic's back, or is the original size. I, I think that always has a lot to do with the failures you see. And like you said, you're going from one extreme to another, Colorado to Alaska. To Alaska. Yeah. I mean, that's that's night and day as far as a wooden bow goes. So I, I see why you shoot a metal bow. I mean, Brit- you think about it, British Columbia, right? Very, very, mm-hmm. very wet. Uh, Arizona, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, um, uh, you know, a little bit in Idaho, North Idaho, very wet up there. You know, it's it's just uh, a lot of just different varying conditions. And, and I again, I, I maybe I just, uh, you know, pulled the one-armed jackhammer and one said apple, one said orange, and one said Aaron's going to be screwed on limbs. I'm just bad luck with limbs. But it's... The last thing I want to do, and I'm in a position, I, I just missed actually probably 185, 90-inch 5 by 7 in Arizona. Uh, had nothing to do with limbs breaking. It had <laughs> to do with me hitting shit on the way to the, the deer. But if you traveled that far, um, you know, for that one shot and, and, and one set cracks, it just it scares me to, to death, especially when you're dropped off in an airplane on the coast of Alaska backpacking into the Chugach Range. I'm not going to whittle some shit out of wood on the side of the mountain. I'm, I'm screwed. <laughs> and, and so I've tried to, you know, base my bow set up on literally as indestructible as possible. Yeah, I get that yeah, for sure. I do too. I know when we come to Colorado, we, we bring an extra one just in case one of ours fails. We have, have a backup bow with us, but it's much easier just to shoot on aluminum, <laughs> aluminum riser and, and limbs you trust, you know, so no, for sure. I've always liked the Satori's. I've just never shot one. I, I've shot them. I've never, you know, owned one and shot it long-term, but I've always liked the looks of the sort, the Satori's. Yeah. And I looked at a ton of different, you know, bows and, and I, I, I screw around and I'll test bows or whatever, but, you know, primarily I've shot a ton of stuff with a widow um, and a bunch of stuff with a Satori. And now obviously I'm shooting a bunch of stuff with a Tempest, but, I've tried, I think a lot of the stuff people, when they're seeing me shoot, it's just me testing out bows for, for guys. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I shot a stalker and I shot a few animals with, uh, you know, a, a stalker and I just, you know, I shot a Hoyt for several years on a compound. I, I like that bridged riser. Um, and I like the fact that I could wrap it around a grizzly bear's head and then go shoot a mountain goat shortly after it and not worry about it breaking. Um, and that's, I am not telling anyone to follow my lead by any means. That's just me and my, me being paranoid, right? I mean, that's just what it boils down to is just worrying. Um, now, if that riser wasn't something I found attractive, a little bit different story. The, the, that Tempest riser is, is certainly, if you like the state-of-the-art look, um, I think you'll love it. In the case like with you guys, I've had people tell me, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and literally 20 minutes later, somebody messaged me and be like, dude, I'm ordering one tomorrow. That is the coolest looking riser. So some people like asses, some dudes, some, some, some dudes like boobs. Yep. Absolutely. That's how bows are, you know, it's no different. 
Well, know, and at the end, guy. at the end of the day, this is kind of something I've always appreciated about you. You're not in anything to do with traditional archery to fit in with this trad crowd. I mean, you're doing it because you're a hunter and you wanted to add a challenge. And to you, yeah, you're right. You have to kind of like the looks of your bow, but at the end of the day, that thing's a toll for you. So you want yeah. that toll to last through your entire hunting season. So whatever, different strokes for different folks. If, if you like that metal riser and it's the best tool for you for the job, great. Have at it. You'll, you'll never get heartburn from me for that. No, we will tell you it's ugly. <laughs> yeah. I'll, well, I'll ride you about the thing being ugly as sin, but at the end of the day, when you shoot 30 animals with, with that bow in a year, I can't uh, harp on you too much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a number you've undercut too. I, I get to go on a lot of depredation hunts, which are awesome when you eat meat at the rate that I probably eat 400 pounds of wild game a year, if not more. Um, I'm all about no killing. Um, it, uh, I, I, when people, when you show up like, Hey, we have uh, 50 depredation tags. Do you want some, do you want to see like a, a mongoose snatching tags that would do stand. I'll take them all. Thank you, sir. Um, but I, I think that uh, you talked about like the the traditional community, and, and not to get on this subject too much, but um, I read some stuff like from Paul Schaefer where he talked about you know he shot veins at elevated rest. You know, like what mm -hmm. is traditional archery? Mm -hmm. Tom Clum, I think, probably said it best at one point when I first started. He's like, traditional archery is exactly what you want out of it and what you make of it. Exactly. You want to shoot a wooden bow or a self-made bow? That's what, the, the issue is that people that are stuck in their own um, opinions of what it, what it, what it is, mm -hmm. and then they, they push those on to, to others pretty, pretty heavily sometimes. And I get it to the point now, for me, it's like people watching in Boulder, Colorado. I just sit on the curb and watch weird fucking people walk by. <laughs> now, I get on traditional archery forums and just watch people post dumb shit. Yep, um, yep. The guy pulls up in his F-350 to get in his lone wolf tree stand. But damn it, he's wearing plaid. He's yep. not shooting trad veins. Yep. He's not trad. Exactly. Okay, well, lone wolf tree stand, state of the art, plaid guy. All right, you, you got to weigh it out, right? For me... If you're out there having fun and promoting hunting, I really don't care if you're wearing pink underwear and using an outlet. Yep. <laughs> as long as you're out there doing the right thing. Other people are a little different. Um, well, when, when Trad Veins first came out, I was laughing literally uncontrollably. Greg Poole and I get some dude that's hunted in his backyard, which there's nothing wrong with that. Like like you guys do in PA, it's a different scenario. Yep. You probably don't need veins, right? Feathers will work. You dry them out at night. Can you go on a 12-day backpack hunt for grizzly bear and tell me you've got the same feedback, right? I mean, right. I, there's different scenarios. There's nothing wrong with feathers. The feathers are awesome. But it's just a, another option, and the next thing you know, I'm the devil because I came up with trad veins. Hell, I thought it'd be welcomed. Well, it is by some, but yeah, most. everybody has their most. own little shit. What's that? I'd say it's welcomed by most. You know, there's there's a lot of younger people getting into traditional archery, and I think that's a good thing. You know, it's the it's the older generation that doesn't like to see quote unquote what they think is right change at all. And um, I mean, I experienced it myself. I've had you know with with trad geeks, so many people bash us for certain things and say that's not trad, and and we will you know argue with them. Well, then what's trad? You know, and 
they're doing things, you know, they're not, they're not walking and, and running and not wearing shoes. They're hopping in their cars and doing this and doing that, but yet they're bashing, you know, what traditional actually is. It's just, it's, it's comical to me. I, I don't, I don't partake in social media too much. I post, you know, things for drag geeks and, and on my personal thing, but I don't spend a lot of time, uh, scrolling through social media and commenting on, you know, everybody's posts. So, um, that I've kind of taken a step back the last couple of years from social media personally, just because of all the craziness. Probably a good idea. Um, my wife's doing the same kind of sabbatical. Is that what that's called? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There were some four letter words hooked to that sabbatical. <laughs> social media, but I, 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 uh, I think that, um, you know, traditional archery, I, I actually saw another podcast post, uh, you know, they didn't mention my name, but it was, this is the guy that's brought more people into traditional archery than since Fred bear. Uh, it was one of those, uh, you know, anti air Snyder type of posts without saying my, my name, not saying I brought, you know, I brought a bunch of people into traditional archery. I'm not comparing myself to Fred bear by any means, but the reality is, is who gives a flip who's bringing them in because yep. they're coming, right? Like, exactly. It, I don't need a brownie patch for bringing people into traditional archery. I would like a little bit less dumb shit posted or, or said sometimes <laughs> from the older crowd, but overall I missed, you know, 40 years of traditional archery. Cause you know, I made fun of, I made fun of me. I made fun of traditional archery. Yep. I wish I would have had a, a Tom Clum to, to grab me and sit me down and say, let's give this a whirl and see what you think. What I did have, though, is a trad guy walked down to me, tell me I was unethical as I was pinwheeling a Reinhardt 18 and 1 at 80 yards as he couldn't hit the bale at 20. <laughs> Probably not the best way to introduce people into traditional archery. So I'm trying to introduce people into it that to, to show them what I missed and the cool part about it. It's not for everyone, but I'd like to at least get it out there for, for people to at least give it a look rather than do what I did and turn their head at it. It's a different way than a lot of people do it, but it's a different way for a reason because the way some people do it is the number one reason why I never got involved in it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like it or hate it, it's working. So I really don't give a shit because I'm seeing a ton of people get in traditional archery and send me messages. And I love that, that they're experiencing what I missed for so long. Absolutely, man. Well, we, we greatly appreciate you and, um, you know, all the content you put out there for people. I know it's not easy, uh, doing it myself and, uh, it's just awesome that you're willing to, uh, hop on podcasts like ours and, and take the time to talk about things that you've probably went over hundreds of times, uh, to help further educate everybody. So, you know, props to you and, and thanks so much for hopping on tonight. Oh yeah. Well, we're, we're all in this together or most of us. Are in this together, <laughs> so I I appreciate everything that you guys are are doing as well, and and I'm glad that we can all hopefully move into the same somewhat direction forward from from here on out because that uh, the the world is turning into a pretty crazy place. So we definitely all strengthen numbers. We definitely all need to to, to tighten up and and uh, kind of grow in the same direction. I 100% agree with you, Aaron. I think yeah, that that's a a good way to word it. Um, last thing I have to say: When are we going to see you at Etar? Denton Hill. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't know. I uh, I'm gonna have to make a commitment to hunting less, uh, 
Now, keep in mind, I will flip a table over in a game of Candyland. I do not lose. I, I'm not a sore loser. <laughs> I'm a very, very competitive person, and, I, and I'm and i in it to win it. And, and uh, I'm going to have to make kind of a and, – and when COVID's over might be when it happens where I really, like, say, okay, I'm focusing on tournaments this year. Hunting is going to be secondary. And uh, and really just focus on you know doing well at tournaments, whether it be you know ECARS one, but also you know IBO and ASA things like that, um, and, and really focus on it. I think I could you know do well. One of the reasons I don't go to ETAR, it's hotter than a whore on Dollar Day, and there's it, it sounds hum- humidity is horrible, and there's probably a bunch of old trad guys that hate me. So it, it has definitely toured me from showing up. No, well, I mean just to brief you on Etar one, it's actually not even a competitive shoot. They have a, a shoot off Saturday night, but it's it's only lasts an hour. But overall, the the whole shoot is not scored at all. It's just a fun shoot, and you know we were kind of talking about the old. I, we stereotype them as the old heads of traditional archery, but I think as a whole it's pretty tough to find a crowd better than the traditional archery community. And yeah, if you came to Denton Hill, you might have a few guys that say, Oh, there's the guy that brought out trad veins. I've or, already ruined that for you with my booths there. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, it'd be few and far between. It's, it's a great shoot to come to. Everyone gets along. Everyone has fun. Uh, the, the most competitive portion of the whole weekend is just, the little scores that your group might have going on shooting a course and just ragging on each other. So as competitive as you are, you'll still have fun, but it's more of a relaxed atmosphere. You need to come just so you can kick his ass because I can't. So (laughs) somebody has to. That's funny. I, uh, you guys should come out. Uh, of course that's easy for me to say as you're in freaking Pennsylvania, but maybe I think Dale Jones is coming out. You guys can all ride together. We're going to have the trad compound team shoot again this year. That'd be fun. Um, you should seriously talk with Dale and we'll get you guys partners or bring your own or whatever. Um, that was a very competitive tournament for a couple knuckle dragon jack wagons, me and Luke coming up <laughs> with the idea. Let's have a tr- I We could not, we turned down hundreds of people mm-hmm. that wanted to come because we kept it limited. Yeah. That was a very competitive shoot. I was surprised. And I think the, what do we have? We had several thousand dollars in payouts. I mean, wow. we had prizes. I think first place won twenty five hundred bucks, um, which I'd like to say I won that money because uh, Cody and I won the tournament. <laughs> but I was like, I, I uh, when, you know, when we were when we were doing this, we're like, man, I hope we can get people to show up. And then you know, we turn around and standing here. I mean, literally, we we were turning hundreds of people down. So we're going to do it again this year and kind of open it up a little bit more. That would be fun. Yeah. That would be great for elk hunting because it's on the side of a damn mountain. So the the course is amazing. That's what we're about. We go up to Etar and and half the targets, more than half the targets, we make up our own shots just because we like to to have fun with it. And uh, the trad stakes for us, not that they're not challenging. I mean, we, but we, we just like to launch arrows. So that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure we'll stay in contact. But uh, but no, I really appreciate you guys uh, having me um, come on, and hopefully I haven't offended too many people with my views. But uh, I, uh, I I definitely like that. Um, there's a lot more trad podcasts and info, and you know people getting out there and, and shooting a stick bow. I think that's great. 
Absolutely, man. Thanks again, and we'll we'll have you on uh, sometime soon. Maybe not have such a sabbatical between uh, the next podcast that you hop on for us. Oh, sounds good, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you.